This is the Killer Chronicles. It was May 17, 1996, in Hayward, California, where 25-year-old Nolan Pamintuan was getting ready for the biggest moment of his life. The following day, he was supposed to marry Rowena Panello in the San Francisco-adjacent Daly City in front of a large group of friends and family. Nolan was taking an active role in planning the wedding and had a to-do list mapping out his activities for the following morning. After catching a few hours of sleep at his parents' home in Hayward, California, he was planning to book a hotel room for after the wedding, pick up tuxedos for himself and several others at the wedding party, and, quote, take care of his aunt Edith. Instead, Nolan would suffer through an unspeakable nightmare, where he was kidnapped at gunpoint, driven around the Bay Area, robbed of all of his possessions, and executed by men who argued in front of him who was going to kill him, as Nolan begged for his life in vain. They shot him once in the chest with a sawed-off shotgun and left him to die in the middle of a Hayward street, where his body was discovered shortly after midnight on what was to be the day of his wedding. His fiancée, Rowena, was informed of his death just a half hour before the wedding was to begin and the entire tragedy could have been avoided if Nolan had just been two minutes faster or slower that day. He was targeted simply because the robbers saw him exiting his car right as they were driving by in a stolen van. The perpetrators left clues all over the place, held on to easily identifiable stolen items, and kept clothing splattered with Nolan's blood. So, identifying them was not exactly a challenge for detectives. Within 10 days of the crime, police had arrested four suspects, two juveniles, one 18-year-old, and a 22-year-old man who was suspected of being the shooter. It turned out that three of them were affiliated members of a Crips gang known as the Sons of Samoa, which had started roughly a decade earlier near Los Angeles and now has a known presence in at least five states, California, Hawaii, Washington, and strangely, Alaska and Utah, according to the FBI. Of the four, two turned snitch and served 16-year prison terms, while the other two remain locked up to this day. Brothers Ropati and Tautai Sumanu, who were deemed the main perpetrators of the crime. Ropati is on death row after a jury convicted him of murder in Alameda County. Tautai, who may have been given the opportunity to testify against his brother if he held out long enough, instead went a different route. He pleaded guilty to first-degree murder with no deal in place, got sentenced to 25 years to life, and tried to take the blame for the murder during Ropati's trial. This is their story, but it's also the story of a little-known gang that sprouted from California's incredibly tiny Samoan population and attracted young men who were in search of a cultural identity in a region where Samoans accounted for roughly one in every 1,000 residents. Though only 22 years old, Ropati seemed to be living a double life. Named after the Scottish novelist Robert Louis Stevenson, Ropati was a deacon at the First Gospel Samoan Church, which his father ran, where he worked with kids and played gospel songs on bass guitar and drums. His family immigrated to the Bay Area from Samoa, where they operated a banana farm, and also where his mother died when he was just three years old. His siblings saw him as a protector, both from local gangs that occasionally picked on them and from Ropati's own father who was known to come home drunk and be abusive towards Ropati's stepmom and the children. Outside of his family, he was known as Smurf, 
a proud member of the Crips gang who spent much of high school flaunting his gang affiliation, jumping people for wearing red, spray-painting Crip tags, and BK for blood killer at age 18, and for working to start his own subset, the 96th Cherry Street Crips, when he was arrested for murder. Though only 5 feet 8 inches tall, Ropati packed a fearsome punch. He was locally famous for his ability to knock an opponent unconscious with a single blow, which Ropati liked to call his one-hitter-quitter. He was his father's firstborn son and was set to inherit a patriarchal role in his family, having recently consented to a full-body traditional Samoan tattoo that was applied with a shark's tooth. He lived in a Hayward property with 23 other family members, which contained a three-bedroom house and a 500-square-foot outbuilding in the backyard. The police referred to it as a compound. Affiliation with the Sons of Samoa came naturally. The gang started in the mid-1980s in Long Beach, California, but by the 90s had worked its way to Hawaii and across California, including to parts of the Bay Area like San Jose, Oakland, and Hayward, three cities where the Semanu family resided. Police in Washington described the SOS as, quote, well-known for using intimidation tactics, extortion, drug rip-offs, and homicide. SOS will fight with any gang, but more commonly they war with their rival, the Tongan Crip gangsters. They use a Seattle Mariner symbol and hand signals for SOS. Quote, they were a very tough group, especially when they had been drinking or were high. Long Beach detective Norm Sorensen told the LA Times in 1990, quote, they were also low on tolerance. They would fight at the drop of a hat. By the time Ropati hit puberty, other members of his extended family were already part of the SOS, and he simply gravitated to it. In some ways, the gang was unique because it didn't exist completely outside of traditional society, nor were there jumping-in rituals or other forms of hazing required to join. Samoans simply banded together out of necessity. In 2000, the entire Samoan population in Oakland was 614, or 0.15%. A friend of the Semanu family wrote in court records that the gang had, quote, a heavy presence in San Jose and the Samoan churches, where members, quote, talked about respecting others, especially elders, but away from church they showed a different side. As bad as SOS was, my friends and I did not look on it so much as a criminal gang, but as a kind of club that promoted ethnic brotherhood and backing each other up. Similarly, the SOS in the Bay Area didn't appear to take color wars as seriously as many gangs did throughout the 1990s. While the blood-crip rivalry was at a fever pitch in Los Angeles during this time, Ropati lived in his Hayward home with Tony Luli, a 16-year-old who associated with the Bloods and had married Ropati's sister. More recently, federal prosecutors in San Jose named a subset of the SOS in Monterey, California as being allied with a local Norteño group known as the Murder Squad that in 2017 worked together to kill rival members of a Sereno gang. In 1996, before the Nolan murder, Luli and Ropati committed a drive-by shooting together, firing three shots from a revolver into the Hayward home of rival gang members, but injuring no one. Ropati was also known to rob people of their jackets on the spot, simply by walking up to them, smacking them with the one-hitter-quitter, and stripping them down where they were, knocked out cold. In short, his criminal behavior was escalating, and for the most part, Ropati was getting away with it. That brings us to May 17, 1996, when as Nolan was participating in a wedding rehearsal at Daly City, 
Ropati, his 16-year-old brother Tao Tai, their brother-in-law, 16-year-old Tony Luli, and an 18-year-old extended family member also affiliated with the SOS, Galuvai J. Palega, decided to drive around the area in search of robbery victims. Tony would later say that he knew, quote, something big was going to happen when he saw the Semanu brothers leave the home with guns and donning dark clothing. They used a flathead screwdriver to steal a gold Plymouth Voyager van, then drove around debating who to rob. After passing by a couple potential targets, they attempted to hold up a man, but the intended victim ran away before they could pull off the heist. Back in the van, Ropati loudly chastised his loyal younger brother over the failed attempt. That's when they passed Nolan Pamintuan, who had just parked next to his dad's home on Huntwood Avenue and was about to walk inside. Quote, Let's go get that guy, Ropati said, instructing Jay, the driver, to turn around. They pulled back around. Tony and Ropati, holding a sawed-off shotgun, jumped out of the van and ordered Nolan inside. He freaked out and offered them a black Movado watch engraved with his wedding date that his fiance had given him just hours earlier, telling them, quote, this is all I have. In reality, Nolan also possessed a gold ring, a Gucci watch, a black leather sport coat, an Old Navy pea coat, and boots, but only $3 in cash. The robbers took everything, but became enraged when they discovered the paltry sum in his wallet. Nolan offered to go to a nearby bank ATM and withdraw cash, and continued to beg for his life while they ignored him. An eyewitness later testified seeing Nolan being led out of the van to a local bank ATM by two large men, one of whom he identified as Tao Tai. The incident was captured on security cameras. Nolan withdrew $300, the daily ATM withdrawal limit, then walked back. Once again, the robbers became angry with the low amount, but Nolan explained that he couldn't withdraw more due to the bank's policy. At that point, he had just minutes to live. The four drove around the area while Tautai and Ropati argued who was to kill Nolan, ignoring his pleas for his life while they did so. It is unclear whether the motive was the anger over the lack of cash or the desire to eliminate a witness or both. Tony and Jay would later testify that neither of them wanted to kill Nolan, and Jay said that he pleaded with Ropati to just, quote, knock him out. According to Jay's testimony, the brothers passed the shotgun back and forth several times before one of them shot Nolan once in the chest on East 13th Street. They then piled into the van and drove away while neighbors rushed outside to investigate the gunshot. The police investigation was open and shut. Authorities discovered the discarded van, which was full of Tautai's fingerprints, and from there found an eyewitness to identify Tautai as one of the robbers at the ATM. Conveniently for the cops, all of their suspects lived in the same home. They raided the Hayward compound on May 26th, arresting Jay and Tony at the home, then waiting for the Semanu brothers to return home from church, where they too were taken into custody. All of the stolen items, including the easily identifiable Movado watch, were found either in the home or in Ropati's jacket pocket. Blood splatter from Nolan was also discovered on the jacket, and a sawed-off shotgun believed to be the murder weapon was found in Ropati's brown Dodge. As if all of that wasn't sufficient, Jay and Tony were placed in the same police squad car that was equipped with a microphone where the cops recorded them talking about how they wished the police wouldn't find the murder weapon and how they intended to say Jay's mom gave him the Gucci watch when they were questioned. That story fell apart during interrogation, and all four were charged with special circumstances murder, making them eligible for life without parole, while Ropati faced the death penalty.
Tony was the first to flip. Then he wrote a letter to Jay encouraging him to snitch as well, saying it was for the good of their families. They both took plea deals in September 2000, months before Rapati's trial, contingent upon their testimony. Tao Tai, who idolized his older brother, pleaded guilty to murder even though it meant there was a strong possibility that he would die in prison, and testified that he was the real killer, not Ropati, explaining that he wore his brother's jacket as he fatally shot Nolan. Ropati's wife, similarly, attempted to create an alibi for him, stating that Ropati was with her the entire evening. In addition to the wealth of evidence, prosecutors used emotionally tinged language, describing to jurors how, quote, he left that sweet bridge room to die all alone on a deserted street. Ropati was convicted of everything. During the penalty phase, the defense tried to gain sympathy for their client by bringing up the abuse he suffered as a child, and how he was once jumped at age 14 so badly that he suffered potential brain damage. Public defender Deborah Levy also contrasted him with the serial killers of the era, telling jurors, quote, He is not a Ted Bundy. He is not a Charles Manson. He is not a Jeffrey Dahmer that is going to have a dozen heads in his refrigerator. There is more to him than this one cold-blooded act. It didn't work. Jurors unanimously recommended death. And while there is little to no chance Ropati will be executed, he remains on death row in San Quentin to this day, where he is appealing his case in federal court. Tao Tai, meanwhile, is at Solano State Prison in Vacaville, California, where he is set to go before a parole board in January 2022. Nolan was buried in the tuxedo he intended to wear for his wedding, in the same church where he was to be married. On the day Ropati was sentenced, Rowena did her best to find words to encapsulate her trauma. We'll leave you with this quote. It is just heartbreaking, she said. You are looking forward to something, a really happy part of your life, and to realize that wasn't going to happen, that you will never see this person you love so much ever again. It is just very hard. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. Be sure to like and subscribe.